One of my favorite definitions and really illustrations of the word attitude comes from our beloved D. Bowman. Uh, D. had a friend, a close friend, in the church at Pasadena whose name was Jim Ienson. I believe he was one of the elders there. And Jim worked for NASA, and there was a time when Dee was with Jim, and, and he heard Jim talking about the attitude of the spacecraft and how it had to have just the right attitude to enter back into the Earth's atmosphere. If it's too high or too steep, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be allowed to come in correctly and land and keep people safe. And so Dee asked Jim, he says, Jim, I hear you using that word. How would you define attitude? And Jim said, attitude is where you are in relation to where you ought to be. I love that. Such a rich, rich principle. This month in our 9 a.m. Uh, services, we've been talking about worship, learning more about worship from the Psalms. And we've looked at some different things that the Psalms shows us, reveals to us about worship. We've made the point that God is worthy of worship. He is full of glory. He has immense weight because of who he is and what he has done. And if you see that and recognize that, you can't help but worship God. And we notice that not only is God worthy of worship, he wants us to worship him. But he wants us to worship him in a way that honors him and glorifies him. We need to worship the correct God in the correct way, treating God as he is. And we made the point a couple weeks ago that, and it's going to be true today, the way we worship God is but a direct reflection of how we see God. Well, I want to add one more layer today, and then we'll be done with our, our, our thoughts on worship. We're going to conclude it this month. I want to look inward today. I want to look at the heart or the spirit, maybe we'll say the attitude of the worshiper. You see, look at that phrase up there from Jim, that quote from Jim. And think about what Jesus said, quoting from the ancient prophet Jeremiah, when he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Attitude is where you are in relation to where you ought to be. The words of Jesus are very sobering because they remind us it is possible to be in the presence of God. It is possible to be in a place of worship, even offering worship with our lips, and yet to be distant from God in our hearts. We're in Psalm 95. I believe this psalm reveals to us how we can identify the issue of being far and distant in our hearts, and how we can correct it by revealing to us the proper spirit of worship. Psalm 95, beginning in verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The seas is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, even though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said that they are a people who err in their hearts. They do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, they shall not enter into my rest. Let's maybe start with a couple observations about what this psalm shows us, at least relating to the lens of the spirit of worship, the heart of worship, the attitude of worship. 
And one thing you see right off is the anticipation, the anticipation of worship. You see it in verse 1, oh, come, let us sing for joy. In verse 2, come before his presence. In verse 6, come. You hear this great anthem. You hear the rich invitation. There's a desire. There's a passion to be in the presence of God. We anticipate things that are important to us. We anticipate things that excite us. And so the bride and the groom, they anticipate the wedding day. The father and the mother anticipate the day the child will be born. Many of you, this time of year, have anticipated your child walking across the stage and getting the diploma and hearing their name on the loudspeakers. We anticipate that they have grand excitement and longing and passion. We anticipate things that are exciting to us. So imagine that. I want to anticipate worshiping God. That there's something so rich, so fulfilling. There's something so, so blessed of the person who spends time in the presence of God. I can't wait for that moment to be just me and him. Pure thoughts, nothing distracting me, a pure moment of devotion to him. And as Acts would say, it's better to give than to receive. I cannot wait to give to the Lord, to bring him and to offer him praise and honor and glory. And to be honest, this is something we can do every day. Every single day within us can be this longing for that quiet moment. Oh, in the midst of the day, there's work and there's school and there's stuff going on at home. But I'm longing for that moment. I'm longing for that avenue where it's just me and God. I think you and I know that there's a greater anticipation for this day, this Lord's Day, because we're gathered as a family and we are bringing this together. And so you see within this psalm, it wasn't an, all right, I'm Sunday, i got to go to worship. There's a grand anticipation of being in the presence of God and bringing him worship. You see the attitude of worship expressed in verse 1 and in verse 2 when he says, let us sing for joy, shout joyfully before him. In the end of verse 2, shout joyfully. Joy, a deep-rooted gladness or happiness in the presence of God. Do you know how you see joy? Do you know how you hear joy? Do you know the opposite? Oh, how I love Jesus with a frown on my face. Stand up, for, stand up for Jesus while I'm sitting down till verse 3. Joy is a deep-rooted gladness in God. Not that everything's going great in my life, that I'm happy about everything, but I have joy, joy in the Lord and who He is and what He has done. Notice the language in verse 1. Let us shout for joy. In verse 2, in the end of verse 2, let us shout. Right? He's not whispering. He's singing with passion and with fervor to the Lord. He's singing with great exuberance to the Lord. And the end of verse 2, it talks about thanksgiving. At the beginning, let's come before his presence with thanksgiving, gladness. Do, do you get the impression of his worship? In fact, let me ask it this way. When you read how this man worshiped the Lord, does it seem different than how you and I worship the Lord today? Maybe not necessarily in what he did, but how he did it. I think for many of us, we do all the things right by the book. We're singing songs, we're offering prayers, we're doing our readings, but the passion of verse 1 and verse 2 passed us by a long time ago. We're shouting for the Lord. That seems something for parents and preachers. We don't shout a whole lot. We're just going to sing to the Lord and offer him what we have in the moment. And yet you see the immense, authentic, real devotion he had in his worship and the reason was the attention of it. There's two words that are crucial to this psalm. If you don't have them underlined or circled in your Bible, I'm going to identify them to you because they are the heart and purpose of this psalm. Two words. They are found in verse 3. They are found in verse 7. It is the beginning word for. 
For, those words are crucial. For, for the Lord is a great God and the great King above all gods. Verse 7, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. The reason he came, come let's praise, come let's sing, come let's enter into his presence. The reason he was passionate and shouting with joy and with thanksgiving is out of a response to who God is. We, we, we miss this so often today, that real, genuine, authentic worship is a response to truth. It's a response to who God is. The wrong question in worship is, how do you feel today? How do you feel? The right question is, what do you know? What do you know to be true? What do you know about God? What do you know about his son? What has been revealed to you? And out of a response to who God is, out of a response of seeing him here as our king and creator in verse 3, seeing him as our covenant God in verse 7, I can't help but pour forth genuine, right? It's authentic. It's not fake. But it's just because he saw the Lord for who he was. Genuine passion comes out of response to the truth. Now, for a moment, I think this invites us to talk about something, and that is the two extremes that exist. The two extremes that exist within every congregation, and it exists within this congregation because we're people, and people who are different. And we have a lot of people, which means this is going to happen more often. There's two extremes relating to worship that the psalm allows us to talk about. One is, is the fact that you just have lifeless worship. There are some that when you talk about worshiping with passion, that makes us nervous, showing any kind of excitement, any kind of exuberance, because for some, that's just not who I am, right? We learn how to worship in one sense because of our personality, right? It's just an outflowing of our personality. Did, did any of you have those fathers or grandfathers, and if they even looked at you, that was as if they just hugged you and said, I love you. That was the extent of their passion. They didn't smile. They didn't touch you. They didn't say I love you, but if you got the nod, if you got the look, that was it. That's some people's personality. And then there are some who just flow it out, and they are loud, and they cry at every movie, and there's all sorts of passion that exudes from them. We worship in one sense because of who we are. It's an outflowing of our personality. But we also worship based on how we were taught or modeled, maybe by mom and dad, or maybe if we were taught the truth, maybe by that congregation, which we first started worshiping at. I think for many of us, the idea, especially represented here in Psalm 95, of shouting to the Lord, of showing great passion, great enthusiasm in worship, I don't know about that. In fact, I think many of us feel shackled to do so because of 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 40. Oops, go back. And we say, ah, let's make sure everything done is, is, in, is decently and in order, which means don't smile when you sing. Don't, don't you dare. Don't stand up for more than one song during a service. Don't you do that. Don't. Don't look at each other. Don't look around, look here, decently and in order. Never mind the fact that this is not what that passage is about. There's a, there's a context about spiritual gifts that we kind of ignore. But a lot of us look at this and we say, ah, no, 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 no. No, don't be big, don't be expressive, don't be loud. Don't do things outside of the norm, outside of the box. We're going to worship in our way, in our form, in our, in our tradition, and that's how we're going to stand. And yet, for some people, what that leads to long enough is that we just have songs and prayers and worship. It's not just that it's devoid of passion. It's just lifeless. We're doing everything for the right, uh, in the right way. We're just not doing it for the right reason. Have you heard that? Funeral songs. 
empty, repetitive prayers where you could say the prayer before the brother gets up there to say the prayer. Because they always say the same thing. Distracted Lord's Supper giving. Lifeless preaching to a bunch of cadavers in the pew. And the thing is, with that kind of worship, can you imagine how we would ever accomplish what the Hebrew writer says to stir up one another to love and good works? That's a problem. But the other side of the extreme is passion for the sake of passion. That my goal is I want to feel something today. That's the goal. The barometer of a good worship, I know it was a good worship, is because I felt good. I felt really good afterwards. I want to come to be uplifted. I want to come and feel stirred. I want to come and feel, we may not say it this way, but it's how it's, it's intended. I want to be entertained. I want to be moved. And the problem is when we seek passion for the sake of passion, what happens is that truth is cast aside in our pursuit of emotion to where we'll leave from here and we'll leave from worship with empty heads but burning hearts. Can, can you see maybe on both extremes how there's maybe something good in both of these? There's some good ideals and the extremes that exist and maybe a meeting in the middle, a balance in the middle is what we ought to aim towards. Maybe a balance in the middle is what God is aiming towards. In fact, right in the middle seems to be Psalm 95, where you have a worship that certainly is full of passion and life and energy, but it's not for the sake of being passionate. It wasn't the aesthetics. Oh, look at this atmosphere, the temple and the incense and the burning low of the lights. It was out of a response to the truth, a genuine response to the truth. And I think one thing that might help us with this, what might help us coming to the middle and our understanding about worship is, number one, don't, don't seek conformity. Seek unity. Don't be a worship police. Don't you love that? My kids have done it. A lot of your kids have done it. It just happens when they say, did you know that their eyes were open during prayer? No. How did you know? <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. But the thing is, we do. We do. Because when someone starts worshiping in a way that's different from me, it's different, we begin to judge. We begin to get uncomfortable. Maybe it's a little louder than what I would do. Maybe it's a little more expressive than what I would do. And it's really easy to, listen, it's really easy to unfairly or even wrongfully, incorrectly, judge a person's motives just because their worship is offered, expressed in a way that's different from my own. I realize there's maybe a different context to this verse, but I think it fits to this, to what we're talking about. When Hannah was praying to the Lord and Eli saw her praying, it says, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Here's Eli. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine or strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Here's Eli. He sees her offering worship, but it's strange because no words are coming out. She's got to be drunk. No one does things like that. Well, he judged her incorrectly. And we need to guard against that. And so if someone comes in and maybe they want to close their eyes, maybe they hold up their hands, maybe they do things differently because of where they are from, you do realize that we are a product of how we have been raised. We are a product of our environment. I loved when I was in Chattanooga, my preaching companion, Tim, Timothy Ruffin, you all remember him from our blast a couple years ago. 
Tim and I were preaching together, and we went to a gospel meeting across town at an all-black church. He stopped me before the door before we got in, and he says, I want you to remember something, Jordan. This, what you are about to feel, is how I feel every Sunday. And so I went in, and he was right. I was the only person that was white in that entire congregation, and it was different. And some of you who have worshipped in similar kind of congregations realize it is different. Is it irreverent? No. Is it unscriptural? No. Is it different than how it is that I've been raised, my traditions, my, my, uh, uh, what I'm accustomed to? Sure, absolutely. Would it be right for me to judge them? Oh, they're not doing it how I do it? No, no. No, it would not. In fact, I believe many of us would be encouraged. In fact, maybe some of that zeal and that passion that has been lost might be reignited. When each of my kids came home, they were adopted and, and we brought them to worship. The younger two were here. You all met Benjamin after he had been home a year. I don't know if you remember. There's a lot that passes by, but they, they had never seen this before, an environment like this. And all three of my kids gravitate towards singing. And when they are in an environment like this, when you hear a lot of loud singing, they can't help but sing loud. Boyd King, our annual singing, two months after Noah came home, wanted to record this singing. And so we got these big old mics right here, and we sat in the front row. And if you go back and listen to our 2018 singing, you'll hear Boyd begin, and you all start, and then you will hear Noah. There was one Sunday, I won't forget it, Noah was standing, and he standing up came to just about here with the top of the pew. <laughs> he, didn't know, he didn't know how to sing softly, and we're not going to squelch that. And so he just sang, and poor Norma Hill was right here. I wouldn't have blamed her if she just kind of turned her hearing aid off, because he just was singing. You know what she said afterwards? I just love how your boy sings with passion to the Lord. And we need more of that, don't we? Maybe this lesson will be a good reminder for the rest of our morning. Have I lost that? I'm, I'm just so busy. I'm so distracted. There's so much going on. And we know these songs. I could sing these songs with my eyes closed. I could sing these songs while balancing a checkbook and making lunch for the morning. I, I've got that. Maybe we've lost some of that passion. And when people come in and they bring it among our midst, let's welcome that. And let's encourage that. Let's be touched by that. Then on the other side of things, oops, don't seek emotion, seek sincerity. Do not seek emotion. Do not come here to be moved. Do not come here to be stirred. Come here to be taught. To learn the truth, to see the Lord. If we believe in any ounce, that if we just change the aesthetics of our morning, if we just dim the lights, if we get in the candles, if we get real low, if we do big portions of the Lord's Supper, if we change up the aesthetics, we'll feel, we'll feel closer to the Lord. Paul Earnhardt said this to me privately a few years ago when he says, those who think that novelty will produce greater spirituality are greatly deceived. The path to greater spirituality is not manufacturing praise, because here's the reality, you cannot manufacture genuine, authentic passion. It comes naturally out of a response to truth, out of who you are, I see it, and it will flow naturally. I can't make that happen in you, and we are not to try and produce that in one another. Let me say something to my, to my brothers who lead. And every song that we are leading, whether if it's new songs or the old ones, the old standards, it does not matter. The question we need to be asking in every song that we are choosing is not, what will this song make me feel? It needs to be, what will this song teach us today? 
We are teaching one another through our songs. Now, through that teaching, do we feel something? Yes, yes, but that's the point of the psalm. He didn't come in saying, I want to have this emotional experience. He says, I want to see the Lord. I want to praise the Lord, and in light of seeing him for who he is, I will feel something. I will feel moved. I will feel joy. I will feel thanksgiving, but it's out of a response to truth, not out of a response to anything that we could manufacture or make on our own. And we'll be better for that. All right, back to our psalm. There's one thing, I don't know if it stood out to you, because the whole first part of this psalm, we're there, and we've got it, and it sounds great. In fact, I would love for us to have that. I would love for whoever wrote that to come into our midst shouting thanksgivings and joy to the Lord. But something happens in this psalm because all of a sudden it shifts. About verse 8, he begins to talk about something really strange and different. In fact, as you're reading it, and as we read it today, did it seem that way to you? Did it seem abrupt? Like all of a sudden you were going somewhere and he took a, a side route or a U-turn and went somewhere different? He talks about something that took place a long, long time ago. He warns them not to follow in the steps of what took place at Mara and Meribah. That's found in our Bibles in Exodus chapter 17. And here's the context. Moses is leading the people of Israel on their way to Mount Sinai. They have left Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. And they're heading to Mount Sinai to receive the law of the Lord. On the way, they get thirsty. There's something really, really relatable about this if you have young kids. I, <laughs> we made the point not long ago. My Emma would fit in so well with Exodus 17 and 18 and 19. I am hungry. Moses, do you have a snack? What about gummies? Can I have another one? I know I just ate, but I'm, I'm still really, really hungry. Do you have anything else? Because that's what's going on. They are walking. They are leaving. They're in the midst of the wilderness, and they're saying, hey, I'm really thirsty. Hey, give us water to drink. Moses said to him, why? Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? As the Lord directs Moses, Moses strikes the rock. Water comes out of the rock and they drink. God gives them what they need. And the conclusion of all of this in chapter 17 is found in verse 7 when it says, He called the name of the place Massa, Strife, and Meribah, to quarrel because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? What does this have to do with Psalm 95? You know that? I mean, is this just one of those things where like, the preacher is going to preach something and all of a sudden he's going to add in an extra sermon at the end of his sermon? You ever know those? Three points and we're done. And then there's like an extra three points into a whole other sermon. Is that what he's doing here? Do you get that scene in Exodus? There they go, and, and they're leaving. And God just displayed to them in one of the most amazing, breathtaking, memorable ways, his power and his compassion. He rescued them from slavery, and he delivered them with ten plagues, parting of the Red Sea. They have seen the power and compassion of the Lord. And then out they go, and they begin to complain to grumble, to even question whether or not God was among them. How does Psalm 95 begin? Come, let us worship before the Lord. Come, let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us sing with joy before the presence of the Lord. He is our king. He is our great God. I want you to see the Lord. I want you to see him for who he is and what he has done for us. The warning, 
Don't draw near to God with your lips and yet be far from the Lord in your hearts. Can you see that? It is possible to see the Lord, to know the Lord, to even draw near the Lord in worship, and yet to be far away from him in our hearts. Here is Israel, and they are in the presence of a God who rescued them and delivered them and showered his compassion upon them, and they begin to question his goodness. They begin to question his power. If there was any reason for them to trust that God could do exactly what they needed in that moment, was it not the exodus? And the psalmist says, don't get there to where you can see God for who he is and what he's done in your life. And you're singing these songs, but it means nothing. Because while you're there in presence, while you're there in the flesh, while you're singing those words with your lips, it means nothing because your heart is far away from him. You know what that means for us? I think the application should be natural. Is that we're here. And we are singing these songs. We're present. We're here in our bodies. We're, we're here in an assembly in a place of worship. And we're singing these songs to God. We've drawn near with our lips. But we're far in our hearts. I sing with my lips, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." But inside, I'm anxious and I'm worried and I'm stressed over these issues in my life. I sing about how much I love God while the whole time I'm thinking, my mind is distracted about all these things, about jobs and projects and work and home and family. I talk about, or sing about leaning on the everlasting arms, and yet afterwards, with the brethren, the first thing out of my lips is complaining about issues in my life. I sing, he is able to deliver thee, and yet as soon as everything is done, I go back to my fears and my issues as if I didn't mean anything I just sang. Do you see the problem? Can you get there with, with Israel? Can, can you imagine from the perspective of God? Do you think, do you think that I brought you out of Egypt? You were slaves and I set you free. And I brought you out and I showed you, I showed you I can do anything. I mean, I did the impossible. I even parted water. Do you think I would have set you free from being slaves in Egypt just to let you die from thirst in the wilderness? And then if I can part water, and if I can make frogs appear out of nowhere, if I can make the impossible possible, then in a place that seems like a barren wasteland, have I not proved to you that I can provide everything that you need? In fact, not, not only can I, have I not proved that I will, that I'm desiring to? Can you feel that tension? Can you imagine the heart of God? Why would you question me after everything you just saw? After everything I just showed you, could you be here at this moment in the presence of everything I am showing you and still question me to be so near in your flesh and so far in your hearts? Brethren, the greater weight is on me and you. How, how could we be so near to the cross? So near. We are going to eat it and we are going to drink it in but a moment. And there is nothing, nothing that will ever declare the greatness and the depths of God's love more than that. And yet how could we be so near and have the word of God open in this assembly and in our Bible classes and in our next assembly and we're singing these songs about, about the greatness of God, how he is exalted through his suffering 
and yet to leave from these places and we've worshiped with our lips but we still hang on to our issues and our complaints and our criticisms as if none of it is real. That's the question Paul would ask. What should we say to these things? If, if, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us, uh, for, for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Has God not proven the depths of his love? Has he not proven the immeasurable power at his hand? Could it be that we are drawing near, here, here, but we are absent. We are missing it in our hearts. Now, the grand so what? The grand way we're going to walk this off the page, and hopefully, hopefully, this will bless our morning and change our morning and change the way we continue to worship this day. It's going to take us back to Hebrews chapter 3. We need to be in our Bibles back to Hebrews chapter 3. The grand so what? How do we fix this? How do we fix the, the, the fact that we could be near the Lord in our bodies? Near the Lord in worship while we say the right things and sing the right things and pray the right things, but it's just like it doesn't mean anything to us. How do we fix this? Well, in Hebrews chapter 3 and in chapter 4, the writer quotes from Psalm 95 four times. Four times in two chapters. Three of the times, he mentions one exact specific phrase. Hebrews chapter 3 and in verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the trial in the wilderness. Down in verse 15 of chapter 3. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Down in chapter 4 and in verse, he quotes it in verse 3. But what we're looking at is verse 7 when he says, again, he affixes a certain day today through saying through David after so long a time after it has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do you hear the conclusion? The issue was they had hard hearts. They had praiseful lips. They had open eyes. They just had hardened hearts. So how do we fix this? How, how do we overcome the struggle of being near the Lord of offering up worship, but it doesn't mean anything because our hearts are hardened. Well, the writer here gives us the answer. We're just going to look at three things. He draws conclusions every time he mentions these phrases, and I think they'll bless us. Three ways to help us from hardening our hearts. Number one, to have brethren that encourage us. In chapter 3, and verse, verses 13 and 14. Encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Do have brethren that remind us of God. Brethren that point us to God. Brethren that when they are counseling us or encouraging us, do so by pointing us to the word of God and back to God. They are not our friends. They are not our brethren. If they try to answer any of our life's issues through their best think so or the world's philosophy, they are our friends. They are true companions of the faith if they point us back to the one, to the answer. That's what I love best about Ricky, Ricky J. Because I cannot tell you how many times I will come into his office. And there are times in, in the moment I'm kind of frustrated. Because <laughs> I wanted to be like, yeah, that is terrible, Jordan. That's really bad. It's awful. Just tell me everything that's going on. But every time, every time I end in there, I cannot tell you. I cannot. How many times I would spew the issue, whatever it is. And his response is, Jordan, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And in a moment, I'm going to say, why aren't you angry with me? <laughs> why don't you agree with me? 
You don't seem nearly as upset at this as I am. But the moment passes and I'm, I'm reminded. The Lord provides. I may not have the answer. I may not have the time or the opportunity. But I can trust in the Lord. And I need to. I need to be patient and to wait on the Lord. And we need those people in our lives, brethren, who are taking us back and pointing us back to the Lord. See the Lord. Trust in the Lord. We need the word to pierce us. Chapter 4 and verse 12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the vision of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge, here it is, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. If I read the word of God and I come away feeling encouraged and helped every time I read it, I'm not reading it correctly. The word of God is not meant to be a butter knife that smooths everything over and you're fine all the time. It is a pierce, penetrating blade. It leaves blood in its wake. It hurts, it cuts, it points down deep. And that's what I need when I need the word of God. I don't need something to tell me how good I am and how great I am. I need to see the I am. And in the presence of his light, I need to see the darkness that exists in me. In the presence of his perfection, as Cole talked us to last week, I'm not, but I need to see that. I need to see his perfection to see where I can grow and to see where I can learn and to see where I need to change. I need to see the Son. I need to see the, Jesus, the Savior, and I need to see in my life how unlike him I am and where I need to grow and to change. I need that pierced, penetrating blade so that when I enter today, and you're here today, you're here I need to be reminded that this is not rude or routine. This matters. It matters to the Lord and it ought to matter to me. These are living words and this is a living God. And I need, I need to be reminded, called out of my slumber. I need to be reminded this is who he is. And he is worthy of our attention and our praise. Be in this word. Be humble with this word. Allow it to do its work. It's hard work on you and on me. And I need heaven. This whole context in chapter, chapter 4, 3 and 4 talks about the greater rest that is to come. The Sabbath that remains for the people of God. Verse 10 of chapter 4 says, The one who has entered his rest as he himself rested from the works as God did from his. Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. You're following the same example of disobedience. Heaven draws us. Heaven helps us. Heaven reshapes our priorities. Heaven realigns the thinking of earth, our temporal time with an eternal perspective. There's something about worship that is shaped and encouraged, stirred through heaven. See, the writer ended by saying in verse 14, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Here's the conclusion. Let us draw near, therefore, with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. I need that. I need to be drawn ever near. Think back to Psalm 95. Come. Come and sing to the Lord. Come, let us shout to the Lord. Come, let's offer thanksgiving to the Lord. What he is saying is, 
let's come to the Lord. Let's, let's come back to the Lord. Let, let's leave that. Let's leave the minutia. Let's leave the noise. Let's leave all the distractions, and let's come back. Let's draw back near to the Lord. Because when we are with the Lord and in the presence of the Lord, none of these things will matter anymore. I love the story of a writer who was talking about his daughter. The man was a businessman. And the story says that for, for years his daughter had longed for a closer relationship with her father, for his interest in her. And one night he asked her to join him for dinner. And so she met him at the appointed restaurant. And almost immediately after they were seated, he pulled out his day timer and began to review the goals that he had set for her that year. She said, I wanted to burst into tears and to run out of the restaurant. I don't want to be someone's project, she said. The author said, we want to be the desire of a person's heart. The heart is the connecting point, the meeting place between any two people. Can you imagine we stand before the Lord and we say, what more do you want? I sang these songs. I offer these prayers. I read your word. I was here on Sunday morning. What more do you want? I want your heart. I want your heart. I don't want empty songs. I don't want lifeless praise. I don't want a meaningless repetition. I don't want a vain tradition. I want you. I want you to see me. I want you to know me. And I want you to love me. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the, through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The heart. It's all about the heart. Today, let's get back to the heart. Be genuine. Be sincere. But let's give God something real today. Thank you for listening so, so well today. We're going to have a closing prayer and a verse of a song, and we'll be dismissed to our classes. Let's be standing for that closing prayer, please. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can, but thank you for connecting with us.